Some of you have kids. And uh, if you don't have kids, you were a kid once, so that's a pretty inclusive category. We, we can all kind of remember back to that time when we were children. And uh, if you have kids or you remember being a kid uh, and remember taking long car rides. How many of you remember taking long car rides, maybe over a day or a couple of days? A few hands go up, but I think some of you are lying. We all remember these kinds of things. And if you're in the car with children, especially young children, on a long car ride, there is a question that will inevitably be asked, maybe multiple times, maybe in the first 15 minutes of a two-day drive across the country. And that question is, are we? You all know the question. It's interesting. It's so common that it's cliche to us. And if you're a good parent, then when you, you take off on a long car ride with young children in tow, you sit down with them before you, you start the drive and you say to those children, you prepare those children for what it means to take a couple of days a trip across the country in a car. You help them to grasp that the destination isn't going to be instantaneous, not, not right there. There's not going to be instant satisfaction. You're not just going to get there in a moment. They need to understand that. They need to grasp that or else they're just going to go crazy. It's going to be upsetting to them that it keeps going on and on and on. They need to have their expectations adjusted so that they can persevere through the trip. And friends, in a similar way, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, here in chapter 19, is going to tell a parable, a story, uh, to his disciples and all those who are at a party uh, that Zacchaeus is hosting at his house. He's going to tell a story to adjust their expectations about the arrival of his kingdom. And so, That's what we're going to be looking at today. We want to adjust our expectations. We want to see what Jesus is saying here. We want to understand what his umbrella or big point is in telling this story. And that's what we're going to do now. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. That's our text for today. I'm going to read it aloud. You read along with me silently. And then we're going to pray that God would be our teacher today and help us to understand the point, the main point that Jesus is making here from this story he tells. Hear the word of God as it's recorded in Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. As they, all those at Zacchaeus' house, heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear Immediately, he said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. 
when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, and he might, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for it. And I'll invite you now to bow your heads in prayer with me before we begin to dig into God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will open this story up for us and that you will help us to gain the main thing from Jesus' teaching. And to rightly establish secondary points as secondary. But that we would see what you're saying about your kingdom. And it's coming. And that we would be encouraged to live in light of your coming kingdom. Well, right now, in the present. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, there are probably a number of ways you could organize this parable. And if you were to go online and listen to some other pastor preach this text, he would inevitably have a different way of organizing it. But I wanted to keep it simple. And so today, I only have two points. And we're going to use the two points to sort of understand this text. Because I believe there are two main events here in this story that Jesus tells Those two central events are, first, the nobleman's departure to receive his kingdom. So that's our first point. The nobleman's departure to receive his kingdom. And then second, and related to that, his return as king. His return as king. Those are the two points. We're going to understand this text together, this story together, by those two points. Now, What we do with those two events is going to change the way that we think about things. How we understand the nobleman's leaving and the nobleman's coming back as king is going to tell us, direct us, as to how we should live here and now. 
if we rightly understand this story that Jesus tells. So let's try to do that. Let's look at each of these in turn. The nobleman goes away, verse 11 to verse 14. The idea of a nobleman going off to receive a kingdom wasn't unfamiliar to Jesus' original readers. We, we might find that a strange thing, right? That somebody has to go off to be made king so that they can come back. But it wasn't strange in Jesus' day. In fact, Herod the Great had to go to Rome to receive his kingdom. And when Herod the Great passed away, he had three sons. And each of his three sons had to go off to Rome in a sense, to get uh, Caesar's blessing on their inheritance of the kingdom of Herod the Great. So there were three portions, one for each of the three sons. And what's really fascinating in light of this parable is to think about Herod's son, Archelaus. He had a son named Archelaus who was so reviled by the inhabitants of the region that he had inherited that indeed they sent a delegation after him to Rome, to protest the idea that he would be made king over them. So there's a familiar historical background to the narrative. Just like in Jesus' story, people would have known about uh, a noble person. I'm using that in a loose sense because Archelaus was not very noble. But a noble person, a rich man, who would go off and come back a king, even one who would be protested as king. It wasn't a strange or foreign idea to the people. Now, I want to pause for just a second. I want to talk about how we should interpret parables in light of that information. Because I can tell you that. And you could be tempted to apply that historical background to what Jesus is saying here and misunderstand the nature of Jesus' kingdom. The negative historical background, a bad man going away to be crowned, Archelaus going off to be made king, and the protest of his people might make you think that Jesus' kingdom is something like Archelaus' kingdom. Maybe we were supposed to understand it that way, but in fact, that couldn't be further from the truth. You see, though everyone in the audience would have had that historical background, would have known that Archelaus was indeed a terrible king. Nobody would have thought for a moment that Jesus was trying to compare his kingdom to Archelaus' kingdom in the sense that he would be the same kind of king as Archelaus was. In fact, Archelaus was never actually given full kingship because the protest actually worked to some extent. He was just allowed to reign sort of as a secondary type of king. Now, nobody would have thought that Jesus was saying, my kingdom is going to be like Archelaus' kingdom. There is... Some parallel here, but it's not about the nature of the kingdom. And sometimes we're tempted, unlike the original audience, we're tempted to apply things, to press details in a parable too far, to try to make every detail significant in some way, that it's saying something about Jesus or his kingdom in this example there's a theologian, George Eldon Ladd, and he, uh, he's gone to be with the Lord now. But he says this about parables. He, ex- he clearly explains the aim of a parable when he writes this. A parable is designed to convey a single truth rather than a complex of truth. It's designed to convey a single truth, an umbrella truth, a main truth. Now, there might be secondary truths underneath that umbrella, 
that we can learn. But ultimately, there's supposed to be one single truth. And if that's the case, and I believe it is, then when we read parables, we have to locate that single truth. We have to know what that main umbrella point is in the parable. We have to ask, what's the single truth of this parable today? And with this parable, there can be no doubt. Because from the get-go, Luke tells us what it is. Look at verse 11 with me again. Luke writes, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because they, his disciples, supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. They were confused about the timing. When the kingdom would come, when the kingdom would arrive, they didn't know. They thought maybe when they get to Jerusalem. No, 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 Jesus says, no. And so he wants to make a point about the timing of his kingdom. Now, we can learn many lessons from this parable. I think there are many sub-lessons, lessons that fit under the umbrella of the timing of Christ's kingdom, the delay in this passage that we see in the coming of the kingdom. But we can't miss out on that main point. We can't miss out on what the, the original crowd was supposed to learn from this parable. Jesus teaches that he has to go away in order to become king. He has to go away. His crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. He has to go away in order to become king, to come back as king. And that's the main point. If the disciples don't get that, they'll be lost If the disciples don't get that, they'll be confused. They'll be vulnerable. They won't know what to make of the delay if they think the kingdom is supposed to come immediately. And so that's mainly why Jesus tells this story. If we make this story, as some have been tempted to do, if we make of this story that it's really about good and bad stewardship, like that's the main point, or it's really about the certainty of the king's judgment, like that's the main point, or, or the nature, perhaps, of the kingdom, like that's the main point, then we will miss out on the main point, which is the timing of the kingdom, the delay of the kingdom, but also the inevitable coming of the kingdom. Jesus must go away in order to come back as king. I wonder if you've ever struggled with the delay of God's kingdom, the delay of Jesus' return. I wonder if you have ever thought, you know, why all this evil? Why all these wars? Why all of this chaos? Why does God allow it to go on and on and on? And in Scripture, we're encouraged to, to cry out, come Lord Jesus. We're supposed to long for the coming of our Lord. But the Bible also teaches us, as we see here, that the kingdom will be delayed, that we don't know when it will come precisely. I also wonder if you've ever been ridiculed by friends or family for your belief in the return of Christ. Ever made fun of for this absurd idea that God's going to break in to history 
and usher in his kingdom. I recall discussing a play while I was at the University of Missouri as an undergraduate um, in a lit class. Uh, It's a play by Samuel Beckett called Waiting for Godot. Uh, You may not know that play, but essentially it's it's an absurd play. It's supposed to be an absurd play. These two friends... Um, they have this conversation throughout the play. And, and they're having this conversation while they're waiting for Godot, this figure. Back and forth, waiting, waiting, waiting. He never comes. And at least one of the interpretations of this play, there, there, there might be many, I'm not sure this is the right one, but one interpretation that's often offered up is that waiting for Godot is supposed to display how absurd, crazy, Futile it is to believe that God will answer us, to believe that God will come, to believe that Christ will return. And so then we're we're reading this play and we're discussing it in the class and young Christian, new Christian, Jason, is sitting there. And some bring up and start to ridicule the idea that Christianity suggests that, that God will come. And this must be a critique of that. This play is critiquing the, the absurd idea that Jesus would come back. And I'm feeling very uncomfortable. I mean, they don't know I'm a Christian. But I feel mocked nonetheless. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. You know, that feeling is nothing new. I wasn't the first person in the late 1990s to feel like I was being ridiculed for a belief in the coming of God's kingdom. In fact, pretty quickly after Jesus ascended to heaven, people began to mock. And so the apostle Peter, in the letter he writes, 2 Peter chapter 3, is forced to deal with those who would scoff or ridicule the idea of Christ's return. And this is what he said, listen to his words. 2,000 years ago, he says this. They, the scoffers, will say, here's the scoffers, where is the promise of his Christ's coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, things go on and on and on. God's not going to break in. God's not coming back. Where is Christ? You sense the ridicule in that? Here's what Peter says to the church. This is what Peter says to you and to me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. How does a thief come? Not not when you'd expect it. Not at a time when you would be waiting for him. Not at a time you would predict No, but the kingdom of God will come. Christ will return like a thief. Jesus and Peter sing in harmony. They both teach that there will be delay. That Jesus must go away in order to come back as king. So we shouldn't be surprised that we too, like those people that Peter was writing to in the letter of 2 Peter, we too are waiting for our Lord's return. 2,000 years later, we're still waiting, but we're told we're going to have to wait. We're taught that in the Bible. 
We shouldn't despair when people deride our belief and hope in the coming of God's kingdom. We shouldn't despair. We're told that that's what's going to happen. We're told to expect it. The question isn't whether we'll be ridiculed if we're open and honest with our belief that God's kingdom is going to come. The question is, how will we respond? How will you respond if you're ridiculed for a belief in the coming kingdom of God? That's the real question before us. How will you live in response to the ridicule? Well, it's funny because Jesus in this very letter that we're studying right now, our letter, this book, Luke, he tells us how to respond. This is what he says. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and on. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. That's the Christian ethic. That's how we're to respond now. Let me just clarify for a second. You could think this means you're supposed to be a pushover. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus wasn't a pushover. You know, someone breaks into your house, you don't yell down the stairs, my most expensive goods are in the basement. That's not what Jesus is asking us to do. Jesus wants us to fight for justice. Jesus wants us to care for people who are our enemies. You you can give to everyone, but that doesn't mean you give to somebody who's going to hurt themselves with your gift. You see, there's supposed to be wisdom here. And so, in a sense, what Jesus is saying here is proverbial. It's wisdom, literature. This is to be the basis for how we behave. People would look at us and they would characterize us as the kind of people who turn the other cheek, who want to strive for peace, who are giving, who are hospitable. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's how you respond when you're ridiculed, when you're mocked. You don't seek vengeance. You don't look for a way to ridicule back. You care for them. You respect them even when you're not respected. That's how we are to live. It's the Christian ethic. It's how we move forward until Christ returns. But we don't live this way simply because we're commanded to live this way. All the other religions in the world have a God who commands them to live in a way like this, perhaps. You do it because the God says you do it. But that is not the reason we live this ethic out as Christians. It's one of the things that makes Christianity so unique, so radical. Is that we don't serve a God who's powerful and will crush us if we don't serve him. That's not the main reason we live this way. The reason we live this way is because our God indeed has treated us this way. He has loved us this way. He has cared for us this way. He has turned the other cheek. He has sacrificed for his enemies. That's why we live this way. That's why Christianity is not a man-made religion. No man or woman thinks this up. This is radical, otherworldly stuff. 
And we're called by our Lord to live like this. The gospel of God is unique. Well, thankfully, the nobleman in Jesus' story doesn't just go away. That would be a really depressing story. He returns as king. He returns as king. The king comes back, verse 15 to verse 27 of today's passage. Now, for some, that's great news, really great news. For others, it's a catastrophe. It's destruction. What makes the difference between the two is their relationship to this king. Have they aligned themselves with him or have they opposed him? That's what makes the difference. If they've chosen to serve him, they're blessed. If they've chosen to oppose him, they're cursed. So you have the two servants that are faithful with their minas and they're put in charge of cities. And on the other hand, you have those citizens who oppose this nobleman becoming king at all and their opposition in the end is a death sentence. It's all about relationship to the king in this parable. What, however, do we make of the outlier in all this? Because if you read the parable, you recognize there is an outlier. One of these things is not like the others. What do you do with the wicked servant? What do we make of him? Verse 20 to verse 24. Let's look once again at those verses. Here's what Jesus says about this outlier. Then another came. Now, that should be your first hint, that this guy's not like the other guys. First servant, second servant, then another kind of servant. That's how we're supposed to read that. He came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And so the king says to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him. What's going on with this outlier? What's going on here with this wicked servant? Well, there's no consensus on how to handle him. You can read through commentaries. You'll find one commentator says one thing, another commentator says another thing. You're not quite sure what to make of him. Some say he's a believer who didn't use his gifts well and is saved, quote, as through fire, end quote, which is a mysterious phrase you can find in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And they think that that's what must be talked about here with this servant. Others think he's meant to represent Jewish leadership and their faux or fake discipleship, like that they act like they're following God, but they're not really following God. I think Jesus is using the wicked servant to make another point altogether. And I believe that because of the context of this passage. We're going to get to that in a second. He's making a bigger point about the coming of his kingdom, right? The umbrella point. 
What is the coming of his kingdom going to be like? Notice that what the servant thinks of the king, that he's a, quote, severe man, end quote, is in conflict with how he handles the mina, hiding it away. Maybe you didn't catch that, but that is not a good way to use the mina if you think that your master is a severe man who's going to take what he did not sow or, or did not work for. What the servant should do is say, if I come back with this mina and this mina only, I'm in trouble. If I really think my master's a severe man. And this begs a question. Does the wicked servant really know the master? Does he really know the master? Does he really know the king? It would seem that he doesn't, after all. The king appears to me to be very gracious. When he deals with his first servant, who has now ten minas, he gives him ten cities. Now, a mina was about four months' wages. It's a, a sizable amount of money that he's, he's you know, multiplied. But ten cities is far bigger than that. There's a massive amount of generosity that this king is showing this servant. And then five minas and five cities. You see the generosity, even you could say grace, because these servants hadn't shown themselves to actually deserve this kind of honor. And yet the king gives it to his faithful servants. It's for this reason that the king's actually shown to be very generous and gracious, that I think the wicked servant is an example of a phony or counterfeit believer, somebody who outwardly looks like a believer but inwardly is not one. Someone who looks like they serve the master but don't really know the master at all. His lack of fruit or works shows that he isn't really a follower of the king. You can go to the book of James in the New Testament in chapter 2. And there's a famous passage that James speaks there, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Faith without works is dead. I think that's what we see here. That without works, it must not be real faith at all. Without fruit, there must not really be a faith there. Thus, we have this wicked servant one who appears to be a believer, appears appears to trust in the king, but doesn't really trust the king, doesn't really know the king. He has no place in the kingdom. Even what he has is taken away from him. This is a lesson Jesus taught throughout his earthly ministry. It's not just right here. It's not just right here. You go to Matthew in chapter 7, and Jesus is talking about his coming, And on that great day when he will come again, i.e. what he's talking about right here in this parable, the coming of the king, there will be some who come before him, suggesting that they've served him well, and he will say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. This is something Jesus taught often in his earthly ministry. This, I think, is the bigger point Jesus is making about the coming of his kingdom. And it is a surprise point in this parable. It would have caught people off guard. It would have made them feel very uncomfortable to hear this. Think back. I said context is important. It is. Think back to last week's sermon because it provides the setting 
the context into which Jesus tells his parable. Where are Jesus and his disciples last week? They're in the home of Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector. Now, a tax collector was a Benedict Arnold in Jesus' day, a traitor. Not just to some people, but to the nation. And so, when people see Jesus go to eat with Zacchaeus, and Benjamin did a nice job of explaining this last week, but when they, they would go, they would see Jesus go to, to be with Zacchaeus, he's going to be with the poster boy for sin. Chief tax collector is like chief sinner in Jesus' day. And something surprising happened there too, didn't it? At that banquet, last week's sermon, something surprising happens. In the middle of the banquet, as Jesus is relating to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus stands up and he says, I repent. If I've defrauded anyone, I'm going to pay them back four times what I've taken. I repent. He has a relationship with Jesus and he turns from his sin. But that's not the big surprise. The big surprise is what happens next. Because as Zacchaeus stands up at that banquet and in front of everybody repents, Jesus stands up next to him. And I want you to imagine this. I want you to think on this. I don't want you to pass this by. Jesus stands up and looks at Zacchaeus. Imagine our Savior looking into your eyes. Imagine yourself, Zacchaeus. And Jesus is looking at you, eye contact, intimate eye contact. And what Jesus says next is the tremendous surprise. He says it for all to hear. Looking into Zacchaeus' eyes, here's what he says. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost if you don't find that surprising then nothing in the Bible will be surprising friends nothing the last person anyone thought could possibly be saved is saved. A son of Abraham. A member of God's family. That's the great surprise. That's the great reversal. Right? Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, Jesus tells those listening to him at one point in his ministry, are entering the kingdom before you, in front of you. The last are now first. No one ever earns their kingdom membership. It's always a gift of God through relationship by faith with Christ Jesus. Big surprise last week. We don't want to miss it. That's the context for this story. So let's put it all together. So you're going to see the lessons from last week up against the lessons from this week. And they're important to see in contrast. No disciple can know for certain who's outside of the kingdom of God. Not you, 
not me. That's Zacchaeus. You think he's too sinful for God to save? You don't know that. That's Zacchaeus. That's last week. And no disciple can know for sure who's in the kingdom of God. That's the wicked servant this week. Do you see how the tables are turned? The reverse is done. Oh, you think you know who's out? Jesus says, you don't know who's out. Oh, you think you know who's in? Jesus says, you don't know who's in. The great reversal. Moreover, we can't know precisely when the kingdom will come in its fullness. That's the umbrella point. We don't know when it's going to come. We simply know that it will come. And it will come with the king. When the king comes, his kingdom comes. And we know that there will be accounting. An accounting will take place on that day. What kinds of servants have you been? We know that for sure. Not the when, but the what. And for those who have followed the king, those who have trusted the king, those who have served the king, there will be great honor. But for those who have opposed the king, even those who looked like they were serving the king, but in their hearts never knew him, there will be destruction. We know that. This is what we know. This is what this parable is about. In light of this, we should know precisely how we must live until Christ's return, until the king's return. We're supposed to live as the king. Following after the king. Primarily, what that must mean is that we must seek to save what is lost. We must preach the gospel. We don't know who's in. We don't know who's out. So in season and out of season, all the time, we're preaching the gospel. We know we must do that. We must be like our Lord. We must be like the king. But we also know some, some other things. And these are important things too. Because sometimes we just say, that's it. That's all I got to know. I just need to be a better person at sharing the gospel. And, and sure, we do. But there are other things. We need to be like our Lord and that our Lord is a redeemer. We need to be redeemers. We need to be a people who are redemptive in nature. Redeeming kindness in a world that knows little of it. Redeeming hospitality in a world where people long for intimate fellowship. Redeeming forgiveness in a world that holds a grudge. Redeeming generosity in a world that is stingy. There are so many ways that we are called to be like our Lord. Small and big. But please don't leave today missing the point that we're called in this in-between time. The time between when our Savior and Lord, our King, has left and come back. We're called to live as servants. And on that great day when he does arrive to usher in his kingdom, 
if we've served him, if we've known him, if we've trusted in him, he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my glory. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for being a storytelling God. Thank you for sharing this parable about the timing of your kingdom. And may we be a people who live in this in-between time, who serve you until that great day when you come in the person of Jesus Christ to usher in your eternal kingdom for your eternal glory. Amen.